there, Queens. I'm Dr. Leslie Branch. And I'm Lanier Logan, and this is Hear Me. Black women define the narratives that shape us. Hear Me weaves contemporary and historical weekly conversations to create stronger bonds and lasting legacies. Hear Me is a sacred space where we discuss and define narratives that shape and define who society says we are and find common ground on the things that unite us. She is me, I am her, and we are Hear Me. Hey, 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 hey. How are you, Dr. Leslie? Hey, what up? How you doing? I'm good. This is Mogul. We sound so um, tired. So are you emotionally tired, physically tired, or mentally? All of the above. Uh, All of the above. I agree to that sentiment. Um, It's just a whole lot going on. So, hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us. We are officially recording for episode 11. 11. 11. Yes. So, I mean, I know we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, Our episode title is pretty much, I don't even know what to say. I don't even realize why we're having these conversations, but you know, is it really a felony in Tennessee? And we're going to talk about that. And that's like a blanket statement. So is it a felony to protest in Tennessee is really um, the question. But before we get into it, what's happening on your side? It's been a lot going on this week. (laughs) So yeah, on my side, uh, of course, you know, not just my side, but uh, Jacob Blake and Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, the wrapping up of the DNC, the the RNC. I couldn't even watch that just because, you know, the few times that I I did try, it was just sheer and utter ridiculousness to my mind. Um, The blatant lies, the just total disregard for uh, the Constitution and the use of the White House as a platform uh, to, you know, have the whole RNC campaign. Uh, What else is there? Wrapped up uh, the summer semester, so felt pretty good about that. Um, So I get a couple of weeks in between uh, then before the fall semester gears back up. Um, What else? Well, wait, before you like jump into that, how has, because we hear, we don't hear enough about what the transition has done to educators. So was there some differences that you experienced um, this summer teaching online? So for a lot of my, um, I guess, colleagues who do, who, who are educators um, in higher ed and I guess as well as um, uh secondary K through 12, um, there have likely been some challenges, some that they have no control over, myself included. But because I have many years of uh, teaching online, it wasn't such a shock for me. So I'm very well versed in how to uh, teach online. 
um, how to develop a course content, how to engage students. But for um, educators who have never done this before, who are typically the, uh, the walk and chalk type of educators, it was, it was um, a high hurdle for them just because they have to learn um, how to use software. Um, they have to learn how to engage the students. But then the things that are not in the control of educators are, is the digital divide, right? Who has technology um, and uh, access to it from their homes versus who doesn't? And, right. and you know, there are clear uh, lines of demarcation in terms of how disparately that went. Mm -hmm. um, but personally, you know, it wasn't really a challenge for me just because I have years of experience and how to do this. And I guess, you know, I'm, I'm visionary in that way um, because for many years, uh, when, when I first came into um, teaching in higher ed and then uh, for many years after that, I would, you know, definitely tell um, my colleagues who were looking for, I guess, other revenue streams just because, you know, the, the salaries weren't there um, to learn how to teach online because the way that I saw it, even as a young academician and young educator, I kind of saw on the horizon, particularly after 9-11, how there would be opportunities to move in that direction. And a lot of colleges at one point did, but then they sort of poo-pooed the whole notion of online uh, learning and backed away from it. But now we're, we're in a situation where it is circumstances that are dictating to us, this is probably how we're gonna have to do education just because of COVID-19. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure this ends up being like another topic, but it often makes me think also the prices for schools should be different. Um, and I noticed that some people who have started college this semester, they're still being charged the same amount and they have to stay home and log on virtually. So I think that this is a part of a bigger conversation. Uh, I did see a clip somewhere where, and this is totally off topic, but it's also along the lines of where we're going, right? So uh, a young lady on TikTok was mentioning that she owed $77,000 in student loans. And for the last 10 years, she had paid a total of $107,000 towards her student loans. And she still has now $77,000 left. That's crazy. Oh, she's paying like double, like that's not even double, that's triple. So um, I think like all of these things are really interesting because there are so many things to protest in this country, honestly. Yeah. Healthcare, education, the lack of it, um, student loans, police brutality, of course, uh, so many different injustices and I'm just really thinking about how Tennessee could possibly be leading the way for other states to follow. <laughs> so 
And I mean, we laugh, but this world, the way it's, the current administration has really showed the entire world how flawed our system really is. And like as African-Americans, we already knew the system was broken, right? We know how we're impacted and what that looks like. But right now it's full for the world to see. So when people, when others choose to ignore that this is a problem or even at the height of where we are with everything, like everything is in your face right now. <laughs> everything is hard to ignore it. Uh, you, it's a constant conversation. Every other day, someone is being shot, murdered. Like it's literally increasing in a way to where it's just like, I'm tapped out. And I don't think it's healthy the way I've tapped out. Like these things are happening and I know it's happening and I'll pop my head in and I read the headlines. I'll read an article, but Mm -hmm. I am so disconnected because I'm so drained that too many of us are being desensitized. And right now there's just so many things happening at one time, the DNC, the RNC, like I couldn't really watch it because I just felt like it was bullcrap. But the other part of me is like, well, you should be a part of the conversation. So I think today, actually, I'm going to sit down on Hulu and just really like um, watch it from the Democrat to the Republican and just to be a part of the conversation and just hear what people are saying. Right. Um, So I know in related to... Tennessee. Anything else? Oh, Chadwick Baldwin. He, Boswick. He died. Bozeman. Bozeman. Yeah. Bozeman. Yeah. That was. That was. That was last night. That was. That, that was, was a different. shocker. Uh, you know, and and I learned about it, and I tweeted something out, and someone that follows me on Twitter said, "Oh, it must be fake news," and I didn't respond, and then um, they tweeted uh, at me again they, you know, they researched it and, and found out that it was actually true. Um, so, I mean, yeah, a lot is happening. Um, and so that, you know, that's going to have an impact to my mind, especially on young black boys and girls. Um, I think particularly maybe young black boys, just because you know, the, the Marvel franchise is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you know anything about Marvel, and I only know anything vicariously because uh, my husband from his younger years was a comic book collector. And, and so he can, you know, tell you the whole uh, history of it. But um, in, in the history of Marvel, there really aren't characters or superheroes who look like us. And so to have uh, King David T'Challa um, in, in that role, I, I mean, it just was such a boost for the confidence for, um, for, the, for how people even saw uh, Black people, you know, uh, and, and the way media portrays us is a whole nother conversation, but the way that character that Chadwick Boseman 
um, brought to life just really, to my mind, sparked a conversation and a movement in some ways about how media, uh, media's racist portrayal of black folks and how they need to uh, be called on the carpet and, and stop it. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just another person who we mutually follow one another on Twitter um, had mentioned that her, one of her kids was wearing their, um, their Black Panther uh, costume and then her 10 year old, uh, you know, came to her room and, and was very, very sad and wanted to know, you know, what they could do to honor his life. So, um, yeah, this, think, this um, honoring his life though, that, I mean, even talking about that and thinking about it, I know he was only 43, Yeah, but he was diagnosed, I think around 38 or he went for his exam. And so if I think about and I, that's hearsay, so don't marry me to that. I think that was something I read earlier today. Um, but just thinking about what he managed to accomplish still, like thinking about legacy building and that's really important to me to be impactful, um, every day of my life and to leave something behind that Madison and myself can be proud of. And, you know, I'm just thinking about all the things that he's accomplished. He wasn't even, he was nowhere near done, right? Like, I think he just, in his career, he just started. People are just starting to pay attention to him. But I remember when he played James Brown mm-hmm. and um, prior to the Wakanda movie. So, I mean, it's just another testament that we have to, outside of like just being, just trying to like maintain our health. Because even that is a flip side. Your insurance company won't approve you to get certain testing or pre-screenings uh, for anything if you're under the screening age. Right. So this just brings a whole different conversation to healthcare and why do we need to have a screening age, right? Um, and there should just be some other things put in place, but, you know, um, well, I'm I mean, I, to the, I, I can tell you, I can um, tell you in terms of screening age, you know, there's a strong family history in my family of breast cancer. And so mm-hmm. um, I started getting uh, screened before the uh, screening age that is set by, um, I guess, the, the radiology uh, folks or the breast cancer folks, just because mm-hmm. of that strong family history. And so to your point, you know, um, and maybe in some instances, overregulation uh, is a thing. And because things are so overregulated or based on some metric that um, excludes a whole lot of people mm-hmm. that, sh- that it shouldn't, and the reason they probably exclude a whole lot of people is because um, it means that they, health insurance companies would have to pay more of their premiums out. So. Right. The, way ins- the way insurance companies make money is by collecting premiums. And if they don't have to pay those premiums out, that's revenue for them. But in certain um, racial and or ethnic groups that are predisposed to certain health conditions, if you set uh, 
that screening age high enough, you just cut off a whole lot of people who are predisposed to a certain thing. And unfortunately, they either never make it to that pre-screening age or that screening age, or by the time they get to that age, it's, you know, too late. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because coming from, I mean, that's pretty personal to me. Anytime I hear someone die of any form of cancer, because my first screening was at 20, my first screening was actually 20. And then by the time I was diagnosed, I was 23. And so I've always had to, and my record kind of has allowed me um, to be able to get those screenings without a problem and get insurance to pay for it. But initially it was a huge deal that I was even being tested um, just because of the age. Right. And so uh, <clears throat> it's really important for us to be adamant, but also to be clear um, about what's in our family and our ailments, especially if a lot of elders are have already passed away. I really encourage people to make sure we have those conversations with our parents and elders about just what diseases are in our family mm-hmm. and what we're possibly susceptible to. But um, so let's jump right in, right? Um, I had read an article, I think this was like a few weeks ago, about Tennessee legislator cracks down on protesters, making it a felony to camp out overnight outside in the Capitol, right? So of course, naturally you jump into like, what, are you making it illegal to protest? Mm -hmm. So it literally was after protesters were camped out for two months around the clock, demonstrations outside of the Capitol doors in Tennessee, uh, Wednesday, August the 12th, legislature um, approved a bill that will make it easier for state troopers to file charges. The bill will cost as much as $1.3 million per year, but the state and the local government uh, plans on doing this. So the Senate passed the bill uh, from 26 to 5 on the party line vote, and the House approved 71 to 20. And so this would be effective September or October after the bill, Governor Bill Lee signs. Now, this makes it interesting, right? And I just want to be clear. So citizens of the state could actually be punished with a year of prison Mm -hmm. and have felony records because they complied, because they simply camped out on public property. Now, this would be considered a class E felony in Tennessee, and it's punishable up to six years in prison. Now, and then protesters would also be held for a minimum of 12 hours. Now, that's a lot. It is. And, and so it's, it's interesting. Um, and part of the reason it is, is because it, if, if this goes through well i mean it's interesting well, it's on many levels no, no, right no i i get that but when i'm talking about going through if an arrest is actually made what this sets up is a contest between the federal and uh the state government the federal and the state court systems right and so let a protester get arrested for exercising their constitutional right 
And you're going to see, to my mind, a whole lot of cases going up through the appeals process and making their way to the Supreme Court. Because Mm -hmm. any law that a state or a city or a local municipality makes that is in contradiction to the supreme law of the land, which is the United States Constitution, that law should be considered unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. And so the Supreme Court hasn't uh, stepped in yet, from what I can tell, but I just really believe that it is, if, if protesters in Kentucky are Uh, arrested for exercising their constitutional right to free speech and to uh, peaceably assemble and protest, that the state is going to, that law is going to be ruled unconstitutional. And and above and beyond that, the state property belongs to the people. Well, so there's a few parts to that, right? So they were actually camped out of the governor's house, right? And so I have this thing or this this thought about protests. I don't necessarily think that they work, that they work um, in the way that they may have worked years ago during the civil rights movement. I do think that Black people, I just, just want to see us move away from just, all right, let's just go protest, right? But on the flip side of that, protests bring awareness to the things and attention to the things that we need, right? So it always should work hand in hand with something else and there should be a clear ask. My biggest issue is we already know who this impacts. Like we have, we're still battling people being arrested for weed and having felonies and unable to get jobs and move on and so many things that you are not eligible for once you have felonies. Mm -hmm. And this really takes away from the freedom of speech. So they were camped out in front of the governor's home. And this brings me to the other point of what are we considering private property, um, public property versus private property? So is the governor's house public or is it private? So is it, was it the governor's personal abode where he lived before he became governor or is it the governor's mansion because that's a good question i'm not sure but if it's the governor's mansion then that belongs to the people the same way the white house where donald trump lives is Mm -hmm. the people's house it is not his personal property right so then why can't we why can't we camp out there like we're camping here because we need you to assist us and you're ignoring us so what other way should we go uh even some of the people who were some of the senate and some government officials were saying that oh they weren't at all and threatened of their life but they just felt comfortable and that's what this is about it's about white people feeling uncomfortable it's about these government officials who are infracting these laws and who are um rightfully choosing to ignore us and support things that are clearly killing us and we're supposed to sit back and be quiet so now that we are up in arms and every state in this country this year has literally had a protest 
every state, every single solitary state. So now that they see that we are up in arms and we're not stopping, because while it's not showing on social media or it's not showing on the news, there are still protests happening daily across the country. And I think this is just another way to silence us. And so I don't know if, I think the other concern for me is, will this become the norm for every other state? So, um, right, so, so there, there should be some, I guess some, some clear guidelines, right? Uh, and again, back to your point, if it's just because people are feeling uncomfortable, then that should not be one of the guidelines. The whole reason you're feeling uncomfortable is because people are bringing something to your attention that is... That you wanted to sweep under the rug? Right. Well, I'm, I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to uh, you know, be diplomatic. No. Right? And, and that's, so the, the reason you're feeling uncomfortable is because uh, people are bringing something to your attention that is wrong, uh, that is morally wrong. And, and whether something is the matter with your moral compass or not is questionable. But if it's morally wrong and it goes against what the, uh, the law of the land says, then it needs to change, right? And so um, I, I think that's, you, you know, we're pushing for the status quo to be changed. And people who are benefiting from the status quo don't like that. And they want to therefore use law as a way to maintain the status quo and to, and, and to abridge the rights of others. Now, again, what's going to be interesting to me is where justice, uh, which is supposed to be blind, falls or weighs in on the matter. And it is not, uh, it's, it's certainly not uncommon in this country for justice to side with those who are the oppressors and against those who are the oppressed. And it, it's, it's, it's a shame, right? It, it, um, it will certainly be a test of where we are. It will be a testament of where we are. Are we this progressive, but we're not progressive. In, enlightened like, country? I think that everything is a testament that we are not who we said we were, period, point blank, period. There's not like, the United States has something to say about every country, about everywhere else, what they're doing, their human rights issues, but they are not willing to look at or acknowledge the human right issues that we have right here on this soil when it comes to police brutality and African-Americans. And I honestly am just outright sick and tired of hearing people say, well, what about black on black crime? Because white on white crime is very high also. Crime will always be high within the proximity where people are on top of each other and they are um, under the certain income uh, limitations. So I'm not interested in any of that. Like I, I just think that like we're in a dangerous territory. So and I know that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. What were you gonna say? Well, you know, just to to revisit 
the point about where does the Kentucky governor, I think it is, we were talking about, live, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, Mayor Lightfoot, she is the, uh, what do you call it? The mayor of Chicago, right? Lori Lightfoot. And there was something in the news, I want to say last week, maybe a couple of weeks ago, about a ban that was uh, instituted about people protesting in front of her house, right? And so I, the difference between, I want to say, Mayor Lightfoot and, and, and we don't know if the governor of Kentucky lives in government property or not. But Mayor Lightfoot, I believe, lives in her private residence. And so it's because she's a public figure who lives in a private residence. So I guess the question is, what does this turn on? Does it turn on the fact that you're a public public, uh, person? Or does it turn on, do you live in public property? Now, if it turns on, if you live in public property, then that property is paid for and maintained by the taxpayers, and it is the people's property, similar to the way the White House is. But because Mayor Lightfoot lives, I believe, in her own present, her own private residence, then no, people should not be able to go to her private home and protest. If they want to protest, they should protest on the property that their taxpayer dollars pay to maintain. Let's be clear. The only, like, I don't feel like any government official should have privacy. Point. I don't care. I don't care who that is. I'm not concerned about whether I'm protesting in front of your house or protesting in front of the house that we paid for. At the end of the day, I'm trying to get your attention. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think that we should, um, I think the rules are gonna be also different for Lightfoot because she's a black woman and no one cares, right? right? And that's just not, that's just me being honest. No one cares. She's a black woman. So nobody really cares about what happens to her or impacted. Do I want to see her not safe? Absolutely not. Do I think that her uh, family should be protect, protected? Absolutely. Um, she, I'm a black woman first. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, if I'm trying to get your attention, at some point, I'm, t- I'm tired of following the proper protocol, sending a fax, sending an email, calling the line, creating petitions, and no one's listening. So, but so if faxes? I decide that I want to camp out in front of your house, not on your property, but across the street or in the street and sit there peacefully, damn it, that's what I'm going to do because you ain't listening. So, but who faxes anymore? I just want to know. I don't know. Some people. I do e-faxes, but in oh, medical, okay. you have to do faxes. <laughs> they do e-faxes from each office. Okay, you, <laughs> from you showing, office you're showing your age, girl. Showing your age. I mean, it's okay. It's okay. You look good for your age. <laughs> so what I How think about um, 20, no, I'm 35. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was about to say 20. No, I'm going too far. I'm going to just be 35 for a while. But when I think about like, um, so the Constitution, right? Um, Freedom of speech. So according to the Constitution, Congress.gov, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. There is not a law on the book that seems to stick when it comes to us, African-Americans. So it clearly says that we have a freedom of speech. We clearly have the right to peacefully assemble. And I think that some of these marches are starting out peaceful and then we have all of these different agitators because I decided to like pull up some, some numbers to see what, who are really showing up at these marches and these protests, right? And when you look at the news, you can see that it's completely changed. There's a lot of people that don't look like us right. that are actually leading these marches. Somehow, those are the ones who will not be arrested. Those are the ones who will not be given felonies. I just think this is another way to just like really push us to silence us, but further harm us with felonies. We know what felonies do. Right. And, and, you know, a great book and, and it's not my book recommendation for this, uh, this episode, but a great book is Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. Um, Mm -hmm. But to your point, Right, so if they cannot just make laws and, and abridge our rights, they have to come up with a way that they can legally do this. And something you said earlier, and, and that you just said a little bit ago, we know the effect that felonies have. They essentially strip you of any of your bill of rights that you have. And even after you have paid your debt to society as a felon, depending on what state you live in, those rights are not restored to you. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it's a very strategic plan that is being rolled out, right? So we're going to say, if you do X, Y, and Z, we're going to slap you with a felony. We're going to send you away for a little bit. And then, you know, you'll serve your time and then we'll release you. And I'm not sure if Kentucky is one of those states that even your rights to vote are restored after you're a felon, mm-hmm. after, after you have served your time uh, and, and you are now an ex, ex-convict. And so mm-hmm. it's, this is a chess match for sure and even though the law has been put in place constitutionally to protect all citizens the Mm -hmm. name of the game is to revoke citizenship not in the traditional way that we might think but by doing things that the constitution says are permissible Right, so reconstruction amendments happened 13, 14, 15. 
black and the uh, enslaved Africans and their offspring who were born in this country were, you know, automatically given citizenship and they were promised 40 acres and a mule. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Lincoln got assassinated. Jackson came to the presidency and just rolled back that whole 40 acres and a mule thing. He was like, we, 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 we just can't do that. And so from that point on, it has just been one barrel after another just thrown in the way of Blacks in this country, the descendants of slaves, to really access the rights and the privileges that this document says that we have. And even though the document says that we have it, people who don't want us to have it are going to create all kinds of strategies to keep us from fully accessing and, and being uh, blessed with those rights. And so, yeah. Well, this, I mean, this, but this is precisely one of the reasons why I said, and we talked about this in our other episode about voting, um, why I don't give two craps about the president because there's so many roles that we need to be voting on in between there, between the Senate, between the House, between local politicians. Like these are the people who are putting these bills in place and who are actively passing right. these type of laws to infringe on us. So there are so many other spaces collectively that we need to be in, um, even just really focusing on who's on the ballot. Right. Because there's a lot of conversation about the vice president and the president, and there is zero conversation about every other area that needs to be voted on for the presidential ballot. There are some other things that we need to vote on there too that's really important that's not even being discussed. So you, you then vote these people in and then they get a position and they're going to impact your life. Yeah. Like they're impacting our lives in a major way. And I, I'm literally over it. Um, I saw something in the New York times as I was just trying to find like something with possibly some updated numbers. And I came across this article that was posted on July 3rd uh, of this year. The Black Lives Matter movement, it may be the largest movement in the US history. And when I looked at the map of what they have, of uh, the percentage of the country, literally every, and it's color coded mm -hmm. uh, based on, and it's interesting because the lighter shade is to represent the majority of white people, um, minorities and African-Americans, and it goes a little darker brown. And we'll make sure we put the link in the show notes so people can actually go read this article because I'm gonna just jump out and paraphrase, but there's so much content here that's important. Um, so far from June 6th, we had over 500 protests. Wow. So by, by the time June 6th rolled around, there was at least like 500 protests that had happened. Uh, and 40% of the country in the United States, at least 1,300 people have, 1,300 states, what? Wait, 
at least 1,300 <laughs> have protested. People have protested. I just read that all crazy. <laughs> and so I think what's funny, I want people to read this article because I just jumped all over the place. Um, but what's interesting is the majority of people who are protesting, the tides seem to be shifting. So it, it looks like it's half and half. But we are majority of the ones that are going to be impacted, right? And so when I think about the Black Lives Matter movement, there's no clear leader right. of this group. And we know that most of the government officials are always targeting. The topic is always BLM, BLM. But there's no clear leader, right? Um, we do see that there are a lot of white people at these protests and a lot of white people who are claiming BLM and they're showing up, but they're also a part of the ones who are doing the vandalism in the same token. So this being the largest movement in U.S. history is definitely concerning because there's a lot of deflection that happens. So I don't often see anyone really talking about the clear, what, what they ask are, right? This hot, but, this hot button issue of defund the police. Literally, we're not asking to defund the police because we're saying that we don't want any police in the state at all. What we're saying is we want to put this money into community improvement. We want to make sure that the police are not just protecting white interests, that they're protecting the public's interests. And of the public, that's African-Americans who are included. And because these conversations are not being had, because this movement is so infiltrated, it's interesting because I wonder if it's being, and this may be like a conspiracy thought or theory, but having everything centered around Black Lives Matter and this being the cause of why these laws are being put in place to further silence us. So, so you have people who are showing up at these marches who probably have criminal backgrounds. You also have people who are showing up at these marches who have great jobs, but they're passionate, they're angry, they want to be a part of some sort of change. A felony can literally ruin these people's lives. Well, for sure. And, and one thing, right, so everything is strategic. Um, and so the strategy is to maintain the status quo where people look like you and I are oppressed. And I think part of cause the backlash that we are seeing and experiencing is, is something that we should probably talk about, right? So what, what went wrong um, in terms of our institutions and, and our governance structures that has pre precipitated this uh, backlash we're seeing, or can we even implicate those things, right? And so I would say yes. And the thing that I would suggest precipitated this was Obama getting elected president, right? And, and it shouldn't be such a wild prospect that a black man who was qualified to win the presidency and who was elected fairly and squarely should, you know, succeed to the presidency. But mm -hmm. I think that just 
that just rubbed some status quo people the wrong way. It just caused them to lose their mind. And from that moment on, I would suggest that narratives have started, narratives were, were being spun, right? So even beginning with the birtherism, right? So Trump did it with Obama, and now he's trying to do it with Kamala. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so these narratives started being spun and, and put forth, and the people who are the, the least well-read, the, the least educated, believe this because mm-hmm. they believe the stuff that comes out of the mouths of elites. Mm-hmm. And so we have these narratives now that are being spun about people that look like you and I and mm-hmm. how we are trying to take the country down and, and we're, you know, we don't represent American values. And if you let us get in charge, you know, it, it's the end of what America is. Mm-hmm. And, and people believe this. And so because they believe it, and, and not just the least educated, right? Because some of the folks who are uh, in Congress and the Senate at both the federal and the, the uh, state levels mm-hmm. are educated people. A lot of them have undergrad and graduate degrees. A lot of them are probably lawyers. Some of mm-hmm. them are doctors. And so it's, it's just these, these unfounded beliefs that they have and so it becomes a zero-sum game. We have to do whatever it is that we can to keep these folks from gaining any kinds of rights or if they decide that they want to exercise their rights through their guaranteed right to protest and uh, freely speak, we're going to stain them with this felony. So anything that they try to do or anything that they say won't uh, be effective. But here's the good news. I, I'm, I'm guessing it's good news, right? Because I try to see the, the silver lining in most yeah, things. Yeah, I need to hear the good news too, because I don't well, hear it. <laughs> well, so knowing people who have um, committed felonies, their, their route is just not through corporate America. But there is space for them in the nonprofit world. And so a lot of them, and just because it's nonprofit doesn't mean that it's not profitable. And, and a lot of them are able to move into the nonprofit sector and create organizations and movements that then allow for um, others who have been convicted of, of felonies to move forward. Right, so I think it's a, it's um, I don't a know if that's so accurate. Um, partly because I thought the very same thing, because there were so many opportunities for people with um, criminal records mm-hmm. for different non-for-profit agencies that I worked with in New York City before I left. So the access was there, right? There were options. But now I'm in places like in the DMV where that's not necessarily the case. That's not necessarily the place. The options for people who are formerly incarcerated or who I would say criminally convicted of whatever, Mm -hmm. if you have a felony, 
um, you were charged, the chances of them getting into non-for-profit are, are harder. They're asking for background checks. They want people. Um, it's not as forgiving as New York City. And I can say a lot of bad things about New York City, mm-hmm. but there are some things that I've experienced when, in terms of access for the criminal justice system that there was a lot of choices. There were so many different programs. Um, sometimes in certain places like 125, there are different organizations and before you hit the next corner, you are, there are already like four different organizations that you can turn to. And so I thought that that was how it was across the board. And that's actually not how it is across the board. So it's really gonna depend on the state and the city. And a lot of times those roles, you need certain skill sets. Um, this just brings on a whole new set of challenges. And I, I know we want to find something positive, but I just don't necessarily see that as realistic in a lot of these states, especially Southern states, where you have the recidivism rate is so high of people who go to jail and come home. It's because they don't have other alternatives. There are not a lot of options for people. And, and so, touche, and, and perhaps I should have been more clear in terms of what I was saying. So, yeah, the same way corporate America has these, um, I guess, uh, stoppers, if you will, or, or ceilings that don't permit certain folks to get in or if they do get in, they cannot raise any higher than a permitted ceiling. Um, the same probably exists in nonprofit world as well. I'm talking about the ability to start one's own nonprofit and, and as a way to then help others who have been similarly situated. And to be quite honest, right, and, and this is not to suggest that, you know, having a record should be in vogue, but when, you know, the, the late John Lewis, um, when he was here, you know, him and his, his gang, Martin, Martin's gang, it, you know, I don't know if it was every week, but every time you turned around, they were getting mugshotted because they were being arrested for uh, protesting. Right. And, and then I guess in those days, I don't know if it was considered a badge of honor, but it was a risk that one took to speak out against injustice. Right. Those- but we're, we're also in, and I, I get that, but we're in a different time right now. Right. We don't, people are not protesting because they want to make this a, their life's work. You have people who are showing up at these protests because they're pissed. They're angry and they want to be a part of something. And again, this is not me. So in this statement, I'm not pro-protest. I'm not, you know, against protest. I'm just saying that we have a lot of people that it's a mixture of why they're even showing up. Outside of the people who are coming to be agitators and cause conflict and to be, um, and to break the rules. Those individuals, by all means, grab them up, arrest them, give them whatever charges you need to because they have ill intentions of whatever the movement is causing for at that time. But you have people who are 
whatever roles or whatever job titles they have during the week and they're showing up and they're bringing their kids. And I just feel like everybody doesn't want to do service work for the rest of their lives. Like people are showing up and I'm not, this is why I don't agree with protests is because people are showing up just for the experience of it. They're coming to share their thoughts or advocate, but then things go left and then people retreat and go home and they go back to their lives. And I'm just really tired of black people being in a position to where it's like, if I say something, I'm penalized to where the rest of my life is impacted. Right. So I just, you know, I just got a visual of um, something that you said when stuff goes left and then people scatter. I can't remember the name of the movie, but it was the movie with Queen Latifah and I want to say it was Ice Cube and she was like this race car driver or something like that. Um, oh, I've never seen that. It was, it was so funny. And um, she stepped to somebody and they had a gun, right? And so you saw her in one moment, you know, all <laughs> big and bad. And then when they showed the gun, she was like, oh, crap. <laughs> it was funny. It was, it was funny about um you know i can't it was it was something that the person was doing wrong and she was you know chiding them about it and she was all bad and and kind of self-righteous and then when they showed the gun it was a whole nother uh she was like oh snap you got a gun or something like it was it was funny but it was a loose association (laughs) right and so i i mean i get it i feel what you're saying um and you know, there's no happy medium, right? So it's it's kind of like an either or. Be, and, and it's an either or because the status quo people have made it that. They are not willing to give an ounce of ground. And so protesters have to respond in kind. Mm-hmm. You know, because otherwise the status quo just remains and the we just continue to lose more and more ground. And, and I think part of why you see more people who don't look like us at protests than people that do is because- Because we know that they, shit don't work. No, I don't think that's it. I think it's because they outnumber us in society. Black people are only 13% of this country's population. So if you assembled all of us at a protest, um, it would be only a fraction of white people in this country, number one. But secondly, I think part of why more of them show up at protests than more of us is because on some maybe low-key level, they realize that if they don't do anything, it's next coming for them, right? So think about it. We just celebrated the 100th anniversary of uh, the 19th Amendment in this country, I want to say on August 18th. So it's been 100 years that uh, white women had the right to vote, even though Black women did participate in the movement. It wasn't until the the 1960s that uh, the Voting Rights Act was passed, and then you know Black people could kind of go to the polls. Um, but there were still challenges. And so I kind of think that, you know, white women, I think 
people who were once considered ethnic minorities uh, in this country before they were considered white mm -hmm. kind of realize if they don't stand up and, and you know, make some noise about the injustices that are happening, this wheel is going to roll all the way back to the point where they get squashed too, like they were squashed in the 1700s and the 1800s and, and, and things like that. And, and so that's just my thought. Um, and yes, some people are there for the experience. Some people are there because experience is the best teacher. You're not going to read about this stuff in the textbook, right? So when three-year-old little Johnny and Susie are in high school, if they read anything about Black Lives Matter movement in a textbook, you already know how it's going to be framed. And so I don't necessarily poo-poo the people who are there for the experience because you can get a way better education, in my mind, through experience and through participating in life and in, in a lot of ways, much better than you can uh, through sitting through a high school civics class or a high school history class. Because they only gonna tell you what you wanna know. And most of the textbooks in this country that are published for high schools and, and, and junior high and the public edu education school system, mm -hmm. you know where the decisions are made about what gets included and what doesn't? Yeah, in Texas, I yes. remember having that argument about five, six years ago because they were trying to change in the textbooks that um, Christopher Columbus discovered America. I think they, they tried to change the text to um, African, uh, Africans were brought here on an internship or some sh they were trying to, they were literally <laughs> trying to, I said no, and it was not, actually it was more than five years ago because I remember Madison being small. She was probably like two or three. And I was so outraged. I said, if Madison come home with a textbook that say we came here on an internship, <laughs> I am going to her school and busting her teacher in the head with the, the book because I will not let y'all blatantly disrespect me and my people and tell my kid that we came here on an internship. And these are the things that are blatantly happening and it's, we're not talking about it enough. So they also vote to change the textbook a certain amount of years. Like there's a term. So we missed it when she was smaller. So we probably need to like research and see uh, if it's coming up again, because all of these things need to be in the textbooks. We're yeah. a part of history, right? Like this is our civil rights movement at this point, And it just looks different than before. But right now we literally have people in our place, in our faces, changing the narrative. Yeah. At the second that it happens. Uh, and I also want to, this brings to my point, um, I want to play the clip of our good old buddy. What is his little raggedy name? <laughs> the Attorney General, um, Daniel Cameron, the uh, general, the Attorney General uh, in Kentucky. Is that where he is, right? He's yeah, in Kentucky. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So during the 
RNC speech, uh, he made some mentions about Miss Brianna Taylor. And I have to say, before I play this clip, I, I appreciate that they are immortalizing her. Like we're seeing, you know, it started with Oprah putting her picture on the cover of O Magazine. You know, Vanity Fair has done it also. But I'm starting to feel like people, other people are profiting too much on our death and our, our pain and our anguish, right? Yes, the pictures look beautiful. Breonna Taylor looks amazing. But I think she would have even looked more amazing if she was alive, still going to work. Yeah. And the more we protest, because there are protests that are happening in the city. You have people like my son, Tamika Scott. Um, uh, one of the rappers from Texas, I forgot, Trey Nay. I'm saying his name, Trey Day, we call him, but I'm saying his name completely wrong. They have literally daily, uh, Portia Williams from Housewives of Atlanta. And so just thinking about those individuals, they're getting arrested, right? They're constantly getting arrested for just being at these protests peacefully, mm -hmm. but they also have money and access. So they're not going to be limited in the same way that the rest of us are limited. But right. I'm mentioning this because I want to play this clip of how casually uh, Danielle Cameron brings up Brianna's name and just how protesters are described. So I'm going to play this clip. Over the last few months, Kentucky's Attorney General Daniel Cameron has made national news regarding the investigation into Brianna Taylor's death. And last night, he spoke at the Republican National Convention and is getting much more attention today. Political reporter Carolina Buchek has the story. Good evening. My name is Daniel Cameron. Kentucky's Attorney General made his support for President Donald Trump clear during his speech at the Republican National Convention. Let's be honest. No one is excited about Joe Biden. And so I ask you to judge the record. On criminal justice reform, Joe Biden couldn't do it, but President Trump did. Daniel Cameron quickly got the attention of political analysts, some who deem him a rising star in the Republican Party. In his speech, Cameron hit some of the same points his former boss and mentor, Senator Mitch McConnell, often talks about. Even as anarchists mindlessly tear up American cities while attacking police and innocent bystanders. Overall, the Republican Party of Kentucky is happy with the message Cameron delivered while representing Kentucky to a national audience. He did a great job last night uh, showcasing uh, how important it is to, to keep moving forward with Republican leadership here in Kentucky uh, and with former years of President Trump in the White House as well. Cameron also used his speech to talk about race. He's the first African-American attorney general in Kentucky, and he's in the national spotlight right now because his office is in charge of the high-profile investigation into Breonna Taylor's death. So some people watched yesterday's speech wondering if that would come up. Cameron didn't talk about the investigation, but he did mention Taylor's name. Whether you are the family of Breonna Taylor or David Dorn, these are the ideals that will heal our nation's wounds. Republicans will never turn a blind eye to unjust acts, 
but neither will we accept an all-out assault on Western civilization. So what does that mean in terms of the investigation? No word on that yet. In Frankfurt, Carolina Butchuk, LEX 18 News. For David Dorn, these are the ideals that will heal our nation's wounds. Republicans will never turn a blind eye to unjust acts, but neither will we accept an all-out assault on Western civilization. So what does that mean in terms of the investigation? No word on that yet. In Frankfurt, Carolina Butchuk, LEX 18 News. I could slap the whole crap out of him. <laughs> like the goal to even mention Brianna Taylor. Can you hear me? Are yeah, you there? Oh, yeah, okay. I can hear you. I, I'm just uh I'm I'm trying to let that register. <laughs> yeah, that was it was really weird. So one of the things I, I think it's also important is how they are casually framing protesting. So we are talking about things and it's like, oh, we're not going to let you, what was the word he used? Uh, terrorized? He didn't Something use terrorized. about Western civilization. Right. And it's like, no, you want us to stay the way it used to be. Now you bringing her name up but you still haven't rendered a decision. These cops are still walking around free over 160 days now. Yeah, yeah. So I don't even understand, why would you disrespect her and bring up her name? And this is one of the things that we're talking about, about protesting is we are getting attention and this is a topic of discussion and most of the country has heard about Breonna Taylor because of the protesters. So removing that right, I, I just, I'm concerned about what this looks like. So if this is passed in many other states, we'll have to rely on other means to share our message, whether that's social media, mm -hmm. um, protests, I mean, I don't know. I, like even just the thought of saying no longer protesting, it, even though I don't protest, I protest with my dollars, I protest with my voice and the platforms that I have and then the choices that I make on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I make choices that support my efforts in terms of protests. So, so his, his, his words where it matters. His words were Republicans will never turn a blind eye to unjust acts, but neither will we accept this all out assault on Western civilization. And so I think what is being framed is what is considered unjust. Anything that tells white people you wrong. Exactly. And he's a damn black man. I should slap the sh he mm -hmm. I listen. <laughs> uh I need to say Wusa. I need a drink after this podcast because <laughs> all <laughs> all um all kin folk, uh, all skin folk and kin folk. Yes. Seriously. Mm -hmm. Seriously. He's more interested because he would be the first black attorney uh general attorney or attorney general. I'm sorry, y'all. Um, right. he's the first black attorney general in Kentucky. 
So he's literally focused on making a name for himself. The weekend that we were trying to get his attention, he ignored us and was taking pictures for his wedding with his white wife. Like this, I just, I just can't. I throw the whole country away. Just throw it away and let's start over. And I think that that's, the reality is that this is what we're seeing happening in front of us. This is a complete collapse because the foundation was faulty for so many years and broken. And we are in a space to where I noticed that these, um, I guess we would call them Gen Z. Is that what we would call them? They come after millennials? I'm, 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 I'm guessing. I would be the millennials. So they are after us. People are tired. Like they have zero Fs given and they are at these protests and they are tearing stuff up and making noise and they're just really not having it. And I don't know. I don't even know what to say anymore. When I become speechless, then we have a problem (laughs) because I just, I don't know what to say anymore. Well, I mean, I don't think that we've hit rock bottom yet, uh, but we are certainly heading that way. And you're right, the system is broken. Um, it was built on faulty bedrock. It, it, was, it wasn't built on bedrock at all. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we're at a place now where people marginalized regardless of what color you look like mm-hmm. but particularly black folks are just really tired of having their hope misappropriated mm-hmm. um, you know you keep telling us have hope have faith you know a more perfect union and blah 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 and <clears throat> we have done that we are still doing that so but, is that where protests do you think um black people what they're essentially saying when you go to a protest is that like, I have hope that my voice is going to be heard and this is going to prompt. I don't think that's what they're saying. I think they're saying the exact No, maybe with the intention, not necessarily what they're saying. So perhaps they are hoping. So anytime a protest happens, it is to dramatize in a very visual way Mm -hmm. the conditions of of the issue right so you can have a conversation about an issue until you're blue in the face and people may just not get it Mm -hmm. but if you then show people a picture and and add some context to this some visual cues some people just might get it Right, so in, in my role as a, uh, an educator, sometimes I explain something to people and it's not because I'm a horrible teacher, but students just don't get it the way I'm saying it. But if there's a student who understands what I'm trying to say and then they say it to uh, the person who doesn't understand it, perhaps and, and in some instances, this has been the case, the way they explain it, the person gets it. I remember being a student taking uh, graduate economics classes and I understood what I was reading, but the words that were coming out of the teacher's mouth, I just didn't get it. Mm-hmm. 
So I would say to, you know, my study group, okay, so, or to the tutor, all right, teacher said this, book says this, um, how do you reconcile the two? Because I understand what I'm reading in the book, but the way the teacher is saying it, it just, it sounds like uh, gibberish. Mm -hmm. So they would explain it and I'm like, oh, okay, that's, that's it. Okay, that's simple enough. And so, no, it's people, when they protest, they're trying to get a point across because the people to whom they have been having a conversation just don't seem to get it. And so protests dramatize an issue in a way that give it a, a broader reach. A, it, it puts some context to uh, some words that were being spoken that people either didn't understand or willfully chose to ignore. And so this is war, right? This is all out war. But it's the, a war against us though. I understand that. And so, you know, what we are trying to do is, you know, trying to figure out how we, how we fight back. But is, is all hope lost, right? And so what, what has typically happened in this war, particularly after we were emancipated, is, you know, we were emancipated. Now, what was supposed to happen was all this flood of uh, protections and benefits, according to, you know, the Constitution and, and, and all of this other stuff was supposed to happen for us, and it didn't. And so we go to them and say, like, yo, what's up, homie? You know, the document says this, but I ain't getting this. What's up? Where's my cut? Or where's my stuff? Where's my rights? And then they come back and tell us, oh, you know, these things take a little time. Be patient, be patient. And so, you know, we were patient. And then 100 years later, from 1865 to 1965, we, we try to be patient. You know, y'all have been telling us to be patient for a century and still nothing. And so from 1965 to, two, to 2020, you know, we're still being told be patient or it's going to come or these things take time. No, no. And so either I, I'm, I'm thinking that while some folks would like for us to be hopeful, mm -hmm. they are misappropriating our hope because it's really not, it's not rocket science. It's not a science project you could make good on the promises that the constitution and other documents say but they choose not to and so i don't think that we should be so hopeful in a system or in a party regardless of which party um that is is saying to us you know they they hear us if any any party that refuses to articulate an agenda around issues that relate to the most marginalized group in this country, to my mind, doesn't deserve its vote. But I think they hear us, though. But they, yeah, they hear, they hear us, us. They hear us they loud they, and clear. But they won't do anything about it. And so that's why we need to hear them. 
right? We need to be clear because they hear us. They understand what we're asking for. They know what we're saying is valid, but they don't care. So we need to internalize that and we need to understand that they're not listening. So now what? What's next? Because that's essentially what this is. If protesting means a felony, okay, then what next? What is the next way that we plan to have our voices heard? Because I don't think we need to be just heard as much as we need to be felt at this point. I actually want to be felt. I want to make sure that whatever steps that we take, they feel it. They feel it. It keeps them up at night. It makes them intense, even more intense. I want them to have concerns when they walk outside that door. I want them to, their families, to have concerns when they walk out that door. That's, that's the space that I'm in because that's what we're living in. That's what we feel every day. If we see police, if we hear a siren, when the conversations we are having to have with our children, um, Doc Rivers made a speech the other day at a basketball game. So we see like the NBA mm-hmm. is not in its entirety, but some teams have pulled away and they're not going to um, play. Well, no, that's changed. So um, no, what happened? Changed. Yeah, so they... Um, protested and boycotted and because the league has now agreed to use stadiums as polling places Mm -hmm. um the players are now going to play so they they got some concessions from the nba with regard to uh issues of um of social justice so wait what's the alternative so they're playing but what so initially they boycotted Right. They just weren't going to play and they didn't. And they made a list of demands to the NBA. And one of, and one of the demands that they made is that those arenas, those stadiums be used as polling places for the upcoming election. Oh, okay. And so because those stadiums and arenas have agreed to do that, they will now continue playing because oh, okay. because one one of the things that has been uh, impacted behind this whole uh, mishigas that we're experiencing is people don't know if their polling place is gonna be available. Then they right. take in the mailboxes. Yeah, you know, the post office is saying they're not gonna, you know, postmark stuff, and then they turn around and say they will. But who trusts the postmaster general? Because He's in league with Trump. And so, you know, Madison Square Garden alone can hold, I want to say, 60,000 people. Right. Uh, and so that was one of the concessions that they got. <clears throat> you know, and, and money talks, right? So it wasn't just the NBA. It was the WNBA. It was the, the soccer people. Um, I want to say it was some of the baseball people. And they have a shortened season as it is. And so the last thing those owners want to do is lose out on whatever little bit of money they can make, and they're making that money off of the players playing. So, mm-hmm. you know, and to your point, a lot of people who are in positions 
to do stuff because they have means, they have money, they have media influence are the ones that need to step up. Mm -hmm. Little people like you and me, right? So we, mm -hmm. we, we're doing our part. We're podcasting. We're speaking out on these issues. Um, you know, we're encouraging other people through our, um, you know, our platform to do mm -hmm. stuff. But people who are protected because of their class because of their money are really the ones that need to step up because if this stuff goes all the way left even what little bit of money they had is not going to really be able to protect them think about who the nba was before it became black mm -hmm. it wasn't really black think about who the quarterbacks were before we had all these elite black quarterbacks, it wasn't black faces, mm -hmm. right? And so people need to, people who are in positions of power need to understand that they have major skin in this game. And if they don't mm -hmm. get involved in the ways like you were saying, the housewife of, was it Atlanta and those folks are getting right. involved because they are the ones who have access and influence. People follow them on social media and not just, you know, skin folk. Mm -hmm. Other folk uh, do too. And so they, they have as much uh, writing on this as the average uh, Joe Schmo. Yeah, I'm over it. I'm over it already. I'm, I'm, I'm over it. Um, to the point where I just, I don't even have anything else to say. Like, I just, yeah. Well, and I know yeah. you shouldn't be, you know, speechless on a podcast, but <laughs> I just think that I am in a space where a lot of us are just like, damn, like, what else is there for us to do at well, this point? So at this point, you know, we have an election coming up. Uh, something's going to happen. And maybe we just, you know, take these next couple of weeks to catch our breath. And I believe the first presidential debate is coming up, I want to say at the end of September. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so we, we take a little bit to catch our breath. Um, we just keep doing what it is that we're doing. Um, but definitely in the words of... Um, of Marvin Gaye in his song, What's Going On? You know, mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know, we've got to find a way to bring some love in here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the answer, but this is exactly where we're at, war. For only love can conquer hate. You know, we've got to find a way to bring some love in here uh, today, what? picket line. This is this is Marvin Gaye, and and he wrote this during the um, the height of the the civil rights in 1960, and he was discouraged from actually writing this song, but he did it anyway. He said, "We don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the answer. For only love can conquer hate. You know, we've got to find a way to bring some love love in here today. Picket lines and picket signs. Don't punish me with brutality." Talk to me so you can see oh, what's going on. What's going on? Hey, what's going on? Right? 
And so this thought was the child that was born of police brutality. And so the more things change, the more they stay the same. And so mm -hmm. this song is just as relevant now as it was back when he wrote it. This mm -hmm. is war. This is war. And because people who are in positions of power spin narratives of hate and sow seeds of discord, they divide us. And, and to my mind, the thing that really sparked all of this that we're seeing now is because... And, and this is not me blaming Obama, but people lost their mind when a black man ascended to the people's house. Well, they and need to get the hell over it. Like, they need to get over it and expect us in more places. How about that? Like, How about it? Yeah. How about that? Um, that's why I'm just so hell-bent on there's so many more firsts for us. There's still too many firsts for us that we really need to shift to diversify to being in spaces because I'm not going to raise my kid to be mediocre and I don't expect any other African-American to raise their children to be mediocre It's very hard to do because we're just born freaking amazing we just have to be nurtured uh, in order for us to be in our full potential so there are so many of us that are still accomplishing things and we're going into new spaces. Yeah. And while I understand your perspective and what it looks like and what may have been the trigger point for people could have been Obama just becoming president. But at this point, I don't even care about that. Like I'm not willing to make any excuses at this point. He came, he went and you know, because of that, we got Donald Trump. I get it. But what's to come right like and i know that this this episode was really about um the protests but it still all leads all roads are leading to voting and i can't tell you that i feel that this conversation will be any different during a kamala and biden term in fact i think it would be worse because Democrats do as much damage to African-Americans by not taking action and by putting up all of these different smoke screens as Republicans do to us. So, I mean, I'm not sure what your, you know, what your thoughts are. I know we still have book recommendations to, to share with people, but this is one of those things where I think people have to pick a side and not necessarily any one side, but more so as an individual. Right. You have to like pick your lane and decide how are you leading your family moving forward? What are the things that you are doing on a daily basis? How does that support us you know, as a collective? Because so many of us don't necessarily want to look at um, being the voice of all African-Americans, but the reality is there are some of us that are in places that have platforms that we could clearly, we are impactful in some way, shape, or form. There are things that we are doing that can either add to the movement, to the progression of African-Americans, or take away from it. And I really think that families, I would like to see families kind of sit down and really have these 
serious conversations about the collective and where we are as a people and where we need to move forward because this is going to require all hands on deck and it's going to require that our families are moving in one direction in accord because that's the one thing i do see that is fearful for so many white people um the entire rnc and all of these different commercials and ads they're really speaking about fear and it's always been that case right it's mm -hmm. always been the case of don't let don't give too much freedom don't give too much information to african americans don't because they get together and it's going to be some shit. and i think that that's where we are right now and i would like to see us start to really narrow down on what that focus is going to be so if your family is skilled and you have money and real estate is what you guys are doing then then that's the forward that's the direction that you guys need to go in everybody every individual's family or every individual will have their own lane of things that they want to focus on and i i definitely think that we should be doing that as a collective because we can't control other people but we could set the tone with how we're leading our own families. For sure. And I read something in the, the news, I can't remember what day it was, but I thought it was so awesome. About 19 families, I want to say, somewhere in Georgia, it may be the Atlanta area, they mm -hmm. bought, they, they pooled their resources and bought, I don't remember how many acres, but a bunch of land with the goal of starting a city where Black folks can live and be safe. Oh, see, that's what I'm talking about. We need to do that in more places. We need to, and I just okay. so, but when you when you were clapping like that, you reminded uh, me of um, Sherman, uh, Sherman, yeah, Sherman. Hercules. Oh, please. Oh, so you trying to call me chunky? <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, and so stuff like that is is i think what you're talking about mm -hmm. um but we you know we've done that before and you know what happened but um, we in a different state of awareness right now right and we know that all things repeat itself mm -hmm. and at the end of the day what i do know is that the success of this country is through the detriment of African-Americans. We built this bitch. And I know you hate when I start cursing, but that's literally the state that I'm in. We built this bitch. So if we need to tear it down or we can go and take our talent somewhere else and start building pockets of cities, because again, this is collectively us, mm -hmm. right? Like, and that's why I say that white people are crazy. They don't know what they want. You don't want us, you don't like us, so we go and take our talents and build our own spaces and here y'all come. Everywhere we are, here y'all come. Here y'all come at and raisins to the potato salad. Nobody asked. Nobody asked for this milky macaroni and cheese, this extra runny macaroni and cheese. Like No one asked. Take your stuff to your unseasoned side of the town and let's go to the seasoned side of the town. And I'm just... Yes, this is the space where I'm in. I just, I'm just tired of it. I'm just tired. I need to find out more about the, this town. Do you have an article about it? Uh, let me do a Because we can also share that in the show notes, too. And I've never uh, had runny macaroni and cheese in my life. First of all, somebody on TikTok 
we make social media and different social media platforms thrive. But you know, you anytime I see a black a white person recording themselves cooking, I know it's just disaster ahead. So this person was making macaroni and cheese. It was so soupy. It looked like white clam chowder. And she put in shell noodles and then put it in an oven to bake it. And she put some breadcrumbs on top. And the person picked it up. It looked like cereal. That's how runny the cheese was. I said, this is. And the person chewed it. No. And smiled and said it was good. No, we don't need that type of catastrophe in our towns. So we need them to stay on the other side of the unseasoned side of the protests, and we will go to the seasoned side of the protests. So yeah, that? I definitely have uh, um, a link for the article. Perfect. We'll <laughs> add it in the show notes. Um, so here's our audience question, and we didn't jump this in in the beginning, but. This is really important. So do you think protesters should be allowed to protest anywhere, including in front of the homes of government officials? What places do you believe should be off limits to protesters? And by creating off limit spaces, does this directly impact protesters, protesters' freedom of speech? So please join in, answer that question on our social media. You can also drop us a voice message in answering that question. What do you think about this question? So I think that part of the Bill of Rights gets framed through where we are in history, right? So <clears throat> there are some jurists, if you will, that are literalists when it comes to the Constitution. And so they believe what it says literally. And then there are some jurists who frame the Constitution based on what is happening at that present moment. And so that's very interesting for me because the lit this, this thing right here, this thing right here, is gonna, to my mind, be very interesting once it does make its way to the Supreme Court. And mm -hmm. believe you me, it will. And so it will be interesting to see how those who are the literalists who believe the Constitution said what it said and that's what it means and it ain't no need to interpretate it. And I said interpretate. Mm -hmm. um, but then there will be others who believe, no, no, you have to interpret the Constitution based on uh, the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so it's going to be, to my mind, a flip. Those who, those jurists who believe the Constitution should be worded the way it is and you don't need to interpret it are going to feel some type of way because of who is framing this new law. Mm -hmm. Right. So you have an attorney general in who, who is a conservative, even though he's black, a conservative that says you protest in front of public property, you're going to be hit with a felony. Um, the jurists who are the conservatives on the court are going to, to my mind, be OK with that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but those who are not conservatives are going to be like, no, no, you have to interpret this 
in its present context. And the same, you know, we're having the same uh, debates around, well, not me, but there are debates throwing around the Second Amendment, mm -hmm. right? The Second Amendment um, was, was created uh, in a time because the colonists or whoever they were needed to protect themselves against a tyrannical government. Uh, and so you had a Bill of Rights that said, you know, we have the right to bear arms. But given where we are today, the Second Amendment, does it still mean the same thing it did when it was written into the Bill of Rights? Well, I guess it depends on who's interpreting it. Mm -hmm. And and so it's going to be this showdown uh, is going to, to my mind, be uh, very interesting and kind of kind of awesome. Uh, but I definitely intend to tweet these show questions, and I hadn't been doing that before. Uh, but mm -hmm. I'm going to do this now just because um, it just came to me to do it. You know, I have these sparks <laughs> of brilliance and genius but but yeah i'm definitely going to tweet this uh this show question and see what kind of uh, response we get okay um so what's your book suggestion this week ah my book suggestion <laughs> is um the Le the leviathan by thomas hobbs it was written many 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 years ago um it was originally published in 1651. Uh, <laughs> but it, it talks about um, uh, this notion of power uh, and, and it, it derives the, the name Leviathan uh, comes from the, the Bible. So it, it, it uh, derives itself from <clears throat> the, the biblical uh, Leviathan, and it concerns the structure of society and legitimate government. Um, and it's regarded as one of the earliest and the most influential examples of social contract theory. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the contract is broken. Our government is engaged in uh, the great risk shift. And that's actually another book, though not my... Um, my recommendation for, for this podcast, but there's a social contract that said that if you allow us to govern you, there will be some things that we will do in exchange for you consenting to being governed and obeying the law. Um, government is abdicating its responsibility and shifting its responsibility to people who are the least able. And when government doesn't do its part, the whole, you know, when you don't upkeep your end of the contract, the contract uh, crumbles. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, uh, Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes. That's, uh, that's my book recommendation. Okay, sounds interesting. Um, that was a really long time ago. So it will be interesting to see the connection between then and now. Yeah. Um, I honestly think that a lot of our laws are archaic anyway and have not been challenged. I mean, we've challenged it, but 
we haven't seen any change with a lot of these laws that we have in place. Um, so my book suggestion is Bearing Witness While Black, African Americans, Smartphones, and the New Protests. So this, this book is interesting because it's about 15 different activists who they are accounting for different social movements that they've seen through their perspectives and they are documenting it. Yeah. And um, it starts out at the height of the Black Lives Movement and uprisings. And it's so many, it's so much information, honestly, just having 15 different perspectives of different activists really documenting different points um, in most recent times. And it's going to talk about so many different things, just the perfect storm of smartphones and the social media, but also how that's connected to social justice and protests. And a lot of the news that are being shared at these protests um, come and make it to the news. Like the news, the journalists and the outlets, like they're tuned into Twitter because a lot of times this is where the information is coming from between that and Instagram. Uh, a lot of the protests and the behind the scenes and all of the things that make the news is literally coming from these protests on the ground instances of things that's happening. So I think that this is a great book to read. Um, it should, it's definitely gonna spark some outrage. I don't think that you should read it straight through. I'm not finished the book not even close, um, partly just because I have to monitor how much of this stuff I'm taking in, because it definitely shifts my mood, but it also does a really good job at uh, sparking different ideas for me and how I can be impactful and how I can make sure that my voice is heard. Uh, so this is definitely one of those reads that I would recommend to people to start. Um, take a look at it and see if you like it. Um, any final thoughts, Dr. Brand? Final thoughts. Um, definitely, just to flow off of what you just said, we need to pay attention to ourselves. This is a lot. Um, I don't know if it's intentional in terms of desensitization or what. So we have to definitely make sure we're not being desensitized to the point of do nothing. Because when we do nothing, then progress stops. Right. Um, so make sure you're paying attention to uh, how all of this is impacting you uh, mentally, physically, spiritually. And, you know, if you need help, definitely reach out uh, to qualified professionals who preferably look like you and can understand what it is that you're going through and can offer you guidance um, that is culturally relative and, and professionally uh, relative. And just find ways individually or find organizations who are doing positive things that you can help lend your individual effort to to strengthen the collective. So that's my um, that's my final thought. And 
so I just noticed you have on hoop earrings. <laughs> yeah. So Dr. Branch is out here looking all young and she has her hair out curly and natural. And I just noticed the way she tilted her head on the last sentence. I'm like, is that hoops I see? So I really could just, <laughs> I couldn't ignore that. I had to acknowledge that. <laughs> looking cute like a button over here. But, um, <laughs> so my final thoughts. What are they? Um, I just, I have to exhale because honestly, we are definitely in a space to where I know growing up, we, I would say things or some of us, we, I, we would hear people make mention of, oh, well, if I was a slave, I would do this. Or if that was me back then, I would do this. And right now, this is that moment. This is that time. Um, I do want to acknowledge all of the protesters and just say that I want to say thank you for choosing to be on the front line. Um, our elders have been on the front lines for so many years. Um, these protests have different spaces in history have brought about change. Um, but also with that, I definitely think that there is a level of change that we also need to have in terms of how we are protesting. And I just want to say that I appreciate every last one of you who have chosen, who have taken away from your families, who have taken your families, you have suffered abuse, you know, being arrested. Um, there are countless protesters who we don't see enough stories about them, but what happens to some of these protesters um, after the protests are over, um, the isolation, the treatment, the incarceration, what those impacts, sometimes we see like suicide, you know, this Black Lives Matter movement started with different faces. Um, we no longer see D-Ray. I don't know where he is, mm. um, but a few of the other protesters, one allegedly killed himself outside of a courthouse. I remember that happened about two years ago. Um, and I just, people on the front lines are subjected to so many different things because they're the ones that's being seen and heard right then. And I just want to say thank you. Um, and for those of you who are choosing not to be on the front line, such as myself, there are other ways you can have your voices heard. And I want you to figure out what lanes work for you. Figure out which one of your talents is best served for the protest and for the movement, because this fight really isn't about us, right? Like I'm 39, I'll be 40 in December, but this fight is literally about Ming, right? Like my daughter and her future and our children and our grandchildren and what that looks like. Um, yes, we are experiencing hard times at the moment, but a lot of these laws and these judges and things that are being put in place are really going to impact our children and our grandchildren uh, in major ways. So I just want to thank everybody for listening, for showing up, uh, if you disagree with any of the views that you hear on the show, yes, we encourage that. We don't all, not all Black people have to think alike. Uh, so please leave us a message. There is an option for you on our 
Anchor and we will share that on social media for you to leave us voice message and comment. Feel free to answer our audience question. Feel free to drop in and share if there's a topic that you want us to talk about. Is there someone you want us to interview? I think the more we go on in the season, I want to really bring people on who can add to topics that we are talking to from a different perspective, um, who might be involved in different places in the things that we're more of the conversations that we are moving forward. So this was episode 11. 11. 11. It was 11. Episode so, 11. Thank you so much for joining us today, party people, and we hope to see you soon. We will be recording our next episode. I don't know what the topic is, but we know it will be eventful because there's a lot of things happening. Yes. Have a good day, party people. Yep. Deuces. On that note, it's the Rizzi. Thank you for joining us. You can catch our latest episodes every Tuesday. Hear Me is on Spotify and iTunes. And it's executive produced by me, Leslie Branch, and Lanier Logan. And big thanks to Lil Salastro who produced the beat. Till next time, hear me.